Good morning. What could be more inviting than a warm, dry, sunny summer Sunday morning? The sunshine is just so. The clouds aren't threatening. There's a hint of a cool breeze blowing. The humidity that was predicted for the day hasn't quite kicked in yet. Is there anything that would make this scenario even more inviting? How about a sermon? (laughs) How about a sermon heavy on theology and hermeneutics? For those for whom hermeneutics is not a household word, the Twitter-sized definition is simply that it's a fancy way of saying high-level, comprehensive interpretation of sacred scripture. Better yet, how about a sermon in a fairly old and non-air-conditioned sanctuary, heavy on theology and hermeneutics, with an emphasis on the sinfulness of mankind, on how that sinfulness impacts all of God's creation, and how God's people are agents for changing that reality. In my mind's eye, it just doesn't get any better than this. It's the perfect context to enjoy a fine, sunny summer morning. Conversations on classical biblical topics like these take me fondly back to an earlier stage in my life, when, as I often say, I knew a whole lot more then than I know now. Perhaps a bit of personal history is in order. Back in the day, in my late teens, without a clear direction to my life, I thought it would be a good idea to spend some time in college. I wasn't really academically inclined at that point, but the alternative for me at that time was milking dairy cows twice a day for the future as far as I could see. After a year of doing that full time, after graduating from high school, I was more than ready to move on to some other activity. Pretty much any other activity would have sufficed at that point. At the same time that those plans were swirling in my head, other factors in my life were at play. I was part of a very strong and growing Mennonite youth group, and I had a strong inclination to engage in serious academic Bible study. But at the same time, I felt the need to do that study outside of the Mennonite Anabaptist context that had been the interpretive framework for my faith and my cultural home for all my life to that point. In short, I had a strong desire to hear what other Christians were saying about this and that and test my beliefs in a context where I knew I would be an outsider. So I found my way into a church-affiliated college with a rather conservative religion department that was firmly grounded in Calvinist Reformed tradition. I think it's, looking back on that, I think it's safe to say that in my desire to be Somewhere where Mennonite thought and cultural identity were not exactly front-burner issues, I got more than what I bargained for. (laughs) Those four years in that context were much like an overture to the musical work that has been my spiritual and thought life to this point. The questions and issues we discussed in some of the better classes have been my daily companions ever since those days. I heard somewhere a truism that sums up much of my thinking about serious academic inquiry into faith, religion, and philosophy. And it's simply that the experience of faith development in college 
is not so much in giving the student all or even some of the right answers. The process is successful, however, if it has provided the student with at least some of the right questions. The rest of life's experience is to try to answer those questions in a satisfactory way. I can say categorically that it was good for me as a naive 20-year-old to go through that experience of rigorous and academically challenging theological inquiry outside of the safe boundaries of my heritage and my community. It helped me to get comfortable with the odd realization that those whom I came to look up to as spiritual mentors and brilliant academics came from very different places than I did and had very different priorities in their theological pursuits. Yet despite their clear and sometimes convincing arguments that dismissed some of my core beliefs as either irrelevant or theologically flimsy, I sensed that there was mutual respect between our positions. Many of my peers and teachers held strong personal convictions about lifestyle choices of simplicity and had the same concern that I had for justice and peace. Many of my fellow students had the same convictions that I do that North American Christians are living as aliens in an empire of power, consumption, and affluence. Although I would hardly describe any of my friends or teachers as biblical pacifists, many of them were vocal in their opposition to American military growth during those Cold War years of the late 1980s. They shared my conviction that excessive military might is just another form of idolatry, of placing trust in human activities over the sovereign will of God. So, what does this trip into my past have to do with today's text? I had to smile to myself when I saw that today's New Testament text was from the Book of Romans. To a traditional Reformed theologian, Paul's letter to the Romans is the entry point to understanding all of Christian scripture, both the Old and the New Testament. In some critical ways, it defines the difference between Anabaptist and Reformed theology. Anabaptists would contend that the starting point for biblical interpretation is the words and life of Jesus, with the Sermon on the Mount passage in Matthew 5-7 as the central text against which other texts are measured. I still believe that that interpretation is the best one, but my experience of swimming around for a while with people from other Christian traditions has given me a healthy respect for those who approach scripture differently than I do. I believe it's safe to say that those I hung around with for four years would start their journey into the Bible with Paul's letter to the Romans rather than the Gospels. Romans is indeed a profound theological treatise that gives t context and texture to the Gospel message and its relationship to God's entire salvation story. In Romans, Paul covers the fundamental truths about God, humankind, sin, salvation, and future glory in a progressive and logical way. It draws heavily from Old Testament themes of God's righteousness and sovereignty and man's, mankind's fallen nature. It describes the inadequacy of the law to bring about righteousness and the justification that comes to a believer by faith. Today's text from Romans 8 is familiar to most of us. It could be described as a mini-manifesto a condensation of what Paul elaborates on further through the rest of the letter. As a logical progression, the passage is worth looking at point by point. To start off with, Paul describes his readers as debtors. In his typical indirect pedagogical style, Paul refers to what believers are not indebted to, 
which he describes as the flesh. Unfortunately, to our ears, at least to mine, the phrase sins of the flesh conjures up a kind of cartoonish image of a fire-breathing preacher railing against this or that bodily temptation. While such a preacherish rant may be true, it may be justified, it doesn't do full impact it doesn't do full justice to the impact of what Paul is saying. It's interesting that Paul uses the term debtor. What exactly is a debtor? A debtor is simply someone who owes an obligation to someone or something else. In the context of this passage with its either-or relationship between lofty spiritual ambitions and human needs and desires, the point that Paul is making is that we need to be reminded constantly of what it is that we have our allegiance to. In other words, who or what holds the ownership of that debt? God's children are indeed redeemed, but the battle isn't over. As Paul so dramatically laments just a few verses earlier in his letter, the things he hates, he ends up doing, and the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. Perhaps we can take some comfort from the fact that Paul admits that he too struggled with the same failures and struggles that we do. And yet another example of the already not yet nature of the kingdom. We owe a debt to the spirit which gives us life, but despite our convictions, our actions fall short of our ambitions to do what is right. I believe one of the discomforts we have with Paul's letters is his take no prisoners, black and white writing style. In some ways, Jesus' teachings seem less threatening. His parables and the stories he told to the crowds about simple country scenes seem more indirect and less threatening. And when Jesus was on a high horse, it was usually against someone in a position of power. Paul, as they say, did not do nuance well. These verses in Romans 8 about loyalty and our behavior are no exception to Paul's direct style. And I struggle with that tone just as much as anyone else does. Paul is not nuanced here by any means. His contention is that we are behaving and living at all times in only one of two ways. We are either governed and led by the promptings of the Holy Spirit, or we are governed and led by our natural instincts. One activity leads to death, and the other one leads to life. Case closed. Paul implies an ever-present choice and goes so far as to claim that it is not enough simply to resist the temptation to do that which we would naturally be inclined to do. Following the leading of the Spirit is an act of putting our natural inclinations to death, to be so inclined towards spiritual aspirations and pursuits that the merely human side of us falls away. Now that, as they say, is easier said than done. We can see that opens up a whole other set of questions that we have to let unanswered at this point. What exactly are the practical implications of putting one's fleshly nature to death, both as a community and for us individually? For better or worse, we are fully held for now within the confines of our mortal bodies, which grow old and tired and irritable. We are prone to follow our natural inclinations even when we know that those actions may not be in our best long-term interest. 
among the deadlines and commitments and the ebbs and flows of our daily lives, it seems a bit quaint and even a little bit melodramatic to our ears to be admonished to put our sinful nature to death. Yet this black and white here or there simplicity is critical to Paul's argument that to be led by the Spirit of God and by extension putting to death our sinful nature gives us the unthinkable privilege of being called children of God. In another this or that phrase, Paul contrasts two spirits, the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption. In language that harkens back to the Exodus story, Paul contrasts the spirit that compels us to return to old, familiar ways of slavery on the one hand with the spirit of adoption on the other. The family imagery of adoption gives us the right to claim our birthright and our inheritance. We are confronted by the radical truth that we are co-heirs with Christ of the blessing of God's kingdom. Paul extends the parent-child metaphor even further. For us to claim the place of being God's children implies that we can cry out to God as a child cries out to a loving parent. According to Paul, when we cry out to God as Abba, it is God's spirit that bears witness to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And this cry of Abba is not just for those times when we are comfortable with ourselves and our circumstances. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus' cry to God at the heart of his despair in Gethsemane was to Abba. We are indeed God's children, but Paul's life and testimony makes it clear that we too will have our Gethsemane experiences. Even then, we are known and loved by God, and we may approach God as heirs of his promises. Now, I'll admit, some of this seems pretty familiar, and perhaps it's too familiar. We have been told these things time and again if we have grown up in the church. God loves us. We are God's children. God is approachable. Perhaps we have grown numb to the impact of what this means as a faith community. Maybe it's time to think on these truths again and reintroduce into our collective imaginations the wonder of being recognized as co-heirs with Christ and co-workers in the emergence of God's kingdom. It may put a new spin on our relationships within our faith community, and it may re-energize us as individuals to think seriously again about our Christian walk and our relationships with God. We are called to willingly participate in God's sufferings and his ultimate glory as fellow travelers on Jesus' journey. Ultimately, Paul's language is eschatological. We live in the present, but our hope is in the future. Paul envisions a time in which the suffering that we may now experience melts away, forgotten, in the fierce and perhaps frightening light of God's final act of consummation. What Paul announces next moves the wonder to an even higher level. The rest of the passage that was read extends the relationship between God and the church to an even wider arena. Paul is so bold as to declare that the entire creation awaits for the children of God to be revealed. Paul's argument to this point through the letter is that mankind is prone to following a sinful nature. The law, which was put in place for our good, actually became an agent of death because, through the law, sin sprang to life. In this passage, Paul goes deeper into the story of creation 
to a vision of creation that is undefiled by human sin. It is not only we humans who suffer from the stress and the turmoil and the decay of life. Paul states without question that all of creation waits in eagerness for the revelation of God's kingdom and its inhabitants. And the implications of that are truly profound. We are identified not only as heirs of the kingdom, but active participants in God's plan of redemption. Our spirit-led efforts will bring about nothing short of a restoration of an unfallen creation. In his commentary on Romans in the New Interpreter's Bible, N.T. Wright offers some helpful insights into the implications of this passage. He writes, the whole creation, sun, moon, sea, sky, birds, animals, plants, is longing for the time when God's people will be revealed as God's, God's glorious human agents, set in authority over the world. But why? Why should creation be so eager for this? And how does Paul know such a thing? He answers by explaining the present state of creation, drawing on Genesis 3 and other Jewish traditions. Creation itself is in bondage, in slavery, and needs to have its own exodus. It has been subjected to futility, not deliberately. It did not rebel as humankind rebelled, but because God subjected it to corruption and decay, creation's equivalent of slavery in Egypt. God did this precisely in order that the creation might point, toward, point forward to the new world that is to be, in which its beauty and power will be enhanced and its corruptibility and futility will be done away with. As God sent Jesus to rescue the human race, so God will send Jesus' younger siblings in the power of the Spirit to rescue the whole created order, to bring that justice and peace for which the whole creation yearns. Now that's pretty heady stuff. But as they say, there are bills to pay and there are children to feed. Sometimes even a dramatic mental image of a redeemed creation just doesn't cut it. It seems distant and remote, even if we believe that it is true. It's a nice vision. It keeps us interested. and perhaps gives us a reason now and then to keep on trying. But the evidence of a fallen world around us and the task to help bring about a new creation seems pretty enormous. Even with the Holy Spirit's guidance, how can we bridge the enormous chasm between the world that is always too much with us and the world that is to come? How do we know if our efforts at bringing in the kingdom are even doing any good? We may joyfully and thankfully accept the gift of God's grace toward us, but at least speaking for myself, I often feel very undeserving of that gift. Perhaps the next few verses shed some light on our condition and offer a helpful perspective to get us over the next hurdle. Not only is the creation groaning, but we ourselves are groaning. We deal with broken relationships, deaths of loved ones, career disappointments, and other setbacks. We sometimes barely have the time or energy to deal with our own here and now challenges, much less the ability to think about working in some small way to usher in God's kingdom. The beauty of this passage is that it makes clear that our weaknesses and frailty are par for the course. Notice how verse 23 is phrased. Paul begins by saying that we already have the first fruits of the Spirit. 
we already have this extra gift that moves us forward. We have what we need. The tools are there. But even still, we groan inwardly. We see the tasks to be done, and we shy away from them. We are tired. We feel alone. In short, we are frail humans charged with a divine task, which is quite a challenge. Some would say it's an impossible one. So what next? We are human. We are indeed a fragile mixture. We are mortal with numbered days, but we are spiritual beings that occasionally show sparks of our divine nature that sometimes even we ourselves are surprised at. We are guilty but forgiven. We are mortal beings with human failings, but also eternal ones with the hope of helping to bring about redeemed creation. We are often lazy, selfish, and unfocused in our pursuits, but also joint heirs with Christ in God's dramatic fulfillment of his plans. What can we do? What's the next step? I believe the conclusion of the passage is the best answer we can be given. What do we do? We hope. That may seem like an easy out, a way for Paul to evade the question. But Paul is clear in this. In hope, we are saved. The sense of the verse is that this salvation we partake in is an event in the past. We were saved, but we were saved in hope of something even better yet to come. Paul extends the argument further as if to emphasize the point. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. That seems obvious, but it's worth repeating. That which is seen is not hope. If we hope for that which has already occurred, we look pretty foolish. Paul follows his assertion with an effective rhetorical question. For who hopes what he has already seen? When we look around us and we see nothing but decay, we really should not be all that surprised. Creation is still waiting. It's still groaning. But can you hear it? There are faint whispers floating around in the wind. There are rumors of another world, another dimension of reality right beneath our feet that is worth taking some risks for. The kingdom is at hand. It is around us, waiting to burst out, but it's hidden nonetheless. There's an electricity, an excitement for those who have the ears to hear it and the eyes to see it. There is a sense of urgency, of excitement, of anticipation. In our better days, when the spirit moves strongly in us, we can feel and see it, like the way we sense that spring is approaching when we smell the soil that was long hidden beneath the winter snow. Creation waits for God's children to be revealed. So in our lower points, we can answer the voices in our heads. Yes, the principalities in power still have a stranglehold on our world. Yes, the children are still dying of malnutrition and lack of basic medical care. Yes, we are citizens of a nation ruled by an unholy alliance of financiers, entertainers, arms manufacturers, religious demagogues, and self-serving politicians. Yes, we have effectively degraded our environment by our desire for convenience and quick fixes. 
Yes, we have allowed the gospel message to be perverted and used in ways that victimize and oppress. Yes, we have sinned against God and others in our relationships. We have done things as individuals that we are deeply ashamed of. We have taken the easy path more often than we have taken up the cross. But the whispers are there. They often seem silent against the din and the noise of our daily lives and the 24-hour news cycle. There is so much that crashes us headlong into the reality of the everyday. It is the curse of our human experience, made even more challenging by the frantic pace that we have set for ourselves. But there is another point that is a bit hidden in Paul's final words in these verses. The sense of the word to wait in the original language in verse 25 is richer than its simple English translation. The word has a clear, active meaning. The image is one of actively waiting, of sitting just on the edge of your seat, of actively anticipating, of behaving as if the changes that we anticipate are close at hand. So what are the practical outworkings of this? How do we live as expectant people? How do we get past the grinding reality that silences the whispers of a new world that is waiting to be born? I wanted to end on a positive note, but I'm naturally somewhat cynical and pessimistic. The voices of the everyday speak loudly in my head. So like Winnie the Pooh, I thought, and I thought, and then I thought some more. I kept on thinking until my thinker started to hurt. I was getting a little tired of thinking, but then after much thinking, a thought came to my mind which I'll share. Tell them to remember who they are. As I look out on this congregation, I recall so many stories. I know some of the stories of hurts and anxieties. I know some of the happy stories of perseverance and determination. I know some stories of frailty, bad health, painful loss, and personal weaknesses. Tell them to remember who they are. What else do I see? I see a body of redeemed people. I see joint heirs with Christ in God's kingdom and co-laborers in bringing about a new creation. I see people who, with the Spirit's help, are anxious to be doing the work of the kingdom in large and small ways. I see a body that can work together to accomplish kingdom work and grow in the knowledge and wisdom of God. Let us be grateful to God for this precious gift, this inheritance, this life in both the kingdom here at hand and the kingdom yet to come. Amen.